Over the last couple of weeks, Mark has done a phenomenal job of talking about God's miracles the last two weeks as he calmed the storm and as he healed the demon-possessed man. We've been seeing these miracles of Christ. And tonight we are going to see two more miracles. But before we talk again about miracles, I think that it is so important that you have the proper foundation in your mind of what a miracle truly is. Is. So we're going to define it right now. If you have that piece of paper that was your bulletin, you've got a pen, I want to encourage you to write down this definition so you can have this foundation. Let's go ahead and put that up there. And this definition, uh, I found it is by a guy named Wayne Grudem. He wrote a book called Systematic Theology. It is an amazing book. And I think that this is the best definition of a miracle that I have ever seen. He says a miracle is a less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Now you've got to really, I mean, guys, you've got to get, if you're anywhere else right now, get right here because you've got to see this definition. You've got to see it for what it is. First one. Again, no, not that one. The other one. A less common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Why does it have to be less common? I think that is the most important two words in that entire definition. It's because God's activity is going on all of the time. It's not just when you perceive the miracle coming, but the activity was all the way through. You see, there's another way that people often, and really, if we were honest, we do this all the time as we think about miracles. This is how we define it. Put that other definition up there. A direct intervention of God in the world. Now, a lot of times when we're praying for something to happen, there's a sickness in your family. You found out that your mother has cancer. You're fearful that your marriage is going to end in divorce. And so you begin to throw up these prayers to God and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying. And finally, God answers the prayer the way that you had hoped. And so all of a sudden, it's just like, God, you showed up. Thank you, Jesus. And you go around and you tell people, man, God was so good to me. He answered my prayer. Where was God before he answered your prayer? You know what I'm saying? God is actively involved in the world all the time. You see, a deist perspective would say that God has started this world into motion and then he steps back. And then you could take that a step further and say, well, then when a miracle happens, God like gets in there and he does his thing, you know, well, God is control of every moment all of the time because he is sovereign. Amen. So check this out today. This is the message. It's that through God's power, he is creating the circumstances in your life that will bring up the faith in you that he desires for his greatest amount of glorification. He is going to use the circumstances in your life to do what he needs to do to bring up your faith so that he can be glorified in you when you rest in the fact that God is in control all the time and he's always powerful, you will be satisfied all the time. Because when you get it through your head that even on your worst day, God is in control, 
there is no greater satisfaction. And God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in Him. That's a quote by John Piper, an amazing quote. So let's get started in this story. We don't have a whole lot of time here because we've got a lot of cool stuff going on tonight. So we're going to go really quickly. All right. We are in Luke chapter 8. It would be good if I told you guys the text. Luke chapter 8, verse 40 is where we are going to start. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. Here we go. Now Jesus returned and a crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Okay, now he returns from a place called the Gerasenes. Remember the region of the Gerasenes. And he has just healed a demon-possessed man. And thousands of demons have come out of this man. And the people get freaked out. And they're like, Jesus, man, like we don't get you. You are going to have to get up on out of here. And so Jesus leaves and he goes back to the people of Capernaum. Now the people of Capernaum, they are beginning to have a respect for this Jesus. Now I'm not saying that everybody knows him or loves him. I kind of pictured it this way. Imagine like the president of the United States coming into the little town of downtown St. Charles. Now I got to think that there's going to be a crowd that gathers. The streets are going to get blocked and people are going to want to see the president. Maybe not everybody likes him, right? But everybody's going to want to come out and see him. And so a crowd has gathered here to meet Jesus. Now check this out, what happens next. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and he fell at the feet of Jesus, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, this guy, Jairus, you need to know a little bit about him. He is a prominent figure in this city. The deal is he is the ruler of the synagogue. And so his responsibility, he could maybe be similar to myself or to Mark. He is the one that organizes the progress of worship. He organizes the church service. Not only does he take care of the church services in the synagogue where all the Jewish people go to church, but he also takes care of the building. And so in the city, Jairus has a lot of clout. He's a wealthy guy, not like us. And people have a lot of respect for him, okay? And so he comes and he has got a major thing happening in his life. His little girl of 12 years old is dying. And so he comes and he lays himself at the feet of Jesus and he begins to plead, Jesus, save my little girl. Now, this is a big step for a guy that is overseeing the synagogue. All right. He is laying everything that he has out on the line for his little girl. Now, for a moment, I want you to not look at Jairus as some dead guy that like lived a long time ago, that is long gone, that you don't need to care about. But I want you to put yourself in this dude's situation. Parents, imagine this. One of your children is dying. And you know it. And you have a matter of time to respond and to help save your child. If you don't have kids, imagine maybe a niece or a nephew or a brother or a sister. This is a real story happening to a real man. And he comes and he pleads before Jesus. This is a guy that has gotten to play dress up with his little girl of 12 years old. 
He has gotten to spend time make-believing with her. He's gotten to work on her alphabet. He's gotten to read stories. He's told stories. He has lived life with this little girl, and he loves her. And so you can imagine this feeling that is rising up with him when he finds out that his little girl is dying. Now, if you're a parent in here, you will be able to relate that when one of your children is in danger, you will do everything that you can to remove them from that danger. A couple weeks ago, I had taken my daughter, Olivia, and my son, Benjamin, and then another little girl named Cassie Parker, and I haven't told Cassie's parents this story, um, so you're going to find out. But I took them to the pool, and I was so excited to get to take these three guys to the pool, and we were going to have such a good time. And so we get to the pool, and as I'm bringing in, like, all the towels and the diaper bag, and, like, everybody's got to be looking at me saying, like, wow, that guy's pretty brave. I get there, and I'm, like, setting up everything on the chair, and I turn my head for, like, literally, like, just a couple of seconds, and all the kids have already jumped, like, full speed into the pool, and I don't even have life jackets on yet. You know what I'm saying? And there's a lot of people here in this pool. And so Benjamin and Cassie are kind of playing at stay. Benjamin can swim a little bit, and, and so they're doing all right. But as I'm like searching for Olivia, all of a sudden I see her, and she has already gotten into the deep water, and she's probably 30 feet from me. And so I used to be a lifeguard. I was a lifeguard for four years, and automatically, like that sense of tear just rushed through my body because she was already completely underwater. And I didn't know how long. I mean, I knew it couldn't have been long, but it could have been already one or two seconds. And it doesn't take long, friends. And so, like, you guys have never seen me this way before, but, like, I started running. You know, I'm, like, like running on the concrete, and then I jump in the water, and I'm like, David Hasselhoff, like, water's like splashing everywhere and I see Olivia and I like dive in and I pull her up and I am just kissing her and I am like, Olivia, don't do that to daddy. You scared me to death. Olivia, you can't swim. What are you thinking? Olivia, you scared me. And, and all this is going on and people are like looking at me like I am just nuts. Like, I have just run through the water. But you know what? When it comes down to it, when your little girl is in trouble, when your little boy is in trouble, it doesn't matter what you look like. You will do everything you can to protect your child. God just does something in you that makes you that way. And that's how we see Jairus right now. Going on, we're going to start there in um, 42b. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And so the deal is, this crowd has gathered all around Jesus, up to the point where like they are almost crushing him. And there is a woman who is in that town, and she has had some type of uterine hemorrhaging where she has had a constant flow of blood vaginally for 12 years. Now, guys, we already have to take ourselves out of this equation of trying to understand this. But ladies, like for a second, like imagine 12 years of of being on a menstrual cycle constantly. 
I don't think that physically we could even understand what this woman has been dealing with in her life. Physically, she has had every day to deal with bleeding for 12 years. Not only physically is that a major problem, but spiritually, emotionally, financially, this woman has been hurting for 12 long years. If you have your Bibles, turn to Leviticus 15:25 with me. Leviticus 15:25. We're also going to be putting these passages up on the screens behind me in case you didn't bring a Bible. Leviticus 15:25 says this. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge just as in the days of her period. All right. Now, I want to I want to explain to you guys what this means. It means when she is unclean, that she is not allowed to be of a part of temple worship. And so this woman has not had an opportunity to be a part of a church service in 12 years. So spiritually, she is hurting. Not only that, but emotionally, if she touches anyone, they become unclean for the rest of the day. And so nobody wants to touch this woman. Financially, we also find out that she's been hurting. In Mark um, chapter 5, verse 26 We'll go ahead and just put that one up on the screen so you guys can see this, what Mark says about this same story. Um, Verse 26, She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And so this woman, imagine this, she has been suffering for 12 long years, emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially. And because she is an outcast in this city, she doesn't want to come before Jesus the same way that Jairus has, right? And lay down in front of everyone to see because even if she touches Jesus, all of a sudden she makes Jesus unclean. And so what does she do? She comes through the back door. Alright, as all this crowd is pressing in and they're gathering around Jesus, she comes and she touches His cloak. Now what does Jesus say? Verse 45, who touched me, Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus says, no, no, no. Someone touched me. I know that the power has gone out from me. Now, what, what's happening here? We're seeing two stories, one in another. All right, It's called a cutaway. It's the only time in the whole Gospels where we see Two stories taking place at the same time. There's a very important purpose that this is happening. These two stories together. Now Jesus stops and he says that someone has touched me. Now remember, going back to the first story, remember Jairus. Okay, remember me. Like watching my daughter drowning. This is Jairus's feeling right now. He's thinking, Jesus, okay, like there's people all around you, dude. 
Like everybody's touching you. What, what are you stopping asking this question for? Jesus, my daughter is dying. She is 12 years old. She is too young to die. Jesus, it's not time for a teaching. It's not time for a conversation. Dude, you've got to get to my house. And even Peter, as he's looking at this, Peter's shocked. He says, Jesus, there are people that are all around you. What do you mean someone touched you? What is this about? But Jesus knows a difference. You see, Jesus knows that it hasn't been a normal physical touch of someone just pressing up against him. But Jesus knows that someone who has become completely helpless has reached out their hand to Christ for help. They are completely hopeless. And Jesus knows it. And they have reached up to him to be saved from the condition that they're in. Friend, Jesus knows when that happens. Amen. And so he experiences this. And Jesus stops and he says, No, someone touched me because the power has gone out from me. Now watch what this woman does. Then the woman, there in verse 47, Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and she fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And so this woman who had come secretly now has to face the reality that she is going to have to come before Jesus because she recognizes he's talking to me. (laughs) He's talking straight to me. This Jesus is way bigger even than I thought he was. He's omniscient. He knows that someone touched him amidst all the other touches. And, And the reality is, friends, do you think that he knows that it's her? He already knows. He's Jesus. There's something way bigger going on here. We've got to catch this. We've got to see what's happening in this story. And so she comes before him trembling in fear that, you know what? If people know that I'm the one that has touched Jesus, they are going to want to run me out of this town because they know that I have made him unclean. (laughs) And so she comes before him, and this is what she does. She tells the entire story. She comes and she says, Jesus, I have been suffering from bleeding for 12 long years. I have not been able to worship in the church for 12 years. The people in this city have completely made me an outcast. I haven't had the opportunity to get married, to have babies, to do anything. I've spent all of my money on doctors, trying to get doctors to help fix me. In Jesus, I was absolutely, completely, totally helpless. You were my only hope. And I heard about you, and I believed in you. I trusted you could do it. And so I reached out my hand in faith, and I asked for you to help me secretly because I didn't want anyone to see. That's what she says. And what does Jesus say? Woman, your faith has healed you. 
go in peace. And the faith that she has is the faith that she's been given. But then there's something else major that is about to happen. He actually says daughter, not woman. (laughs) Sorry about that. Verse 49. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead. She's dead, dude. She's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. But hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. And so if you can imagine what was once like this anxious desire for his daughter to be healed has automatically turned to complete and utter despair. His daughter, the daughter that he was trying to save, he has just found out is dead. And so right now, like if we just try to put ourselves in Jairus' position, I've got to think that he is pretty frustrated. First of all, I think that he's probably a little bit frustrated at this woman thinking in his mind, if you had not gotten in my way, (laughs) I had a chance to save my daughter. If you got in my way, what were you thinking? You've been sick for 12 years. My daughter was dying. If you could just wait five minutes, let him get to my house and heal my daughter. Now she's dead and I'm hopeless. Into Jesus. You know what? Jesus, you could have just let her be healed. If you really cared about my daughter, you could have just let this whole thing go because she was already healed. Why did you have to have this public teaching and conversation? What was the point? In the midst of this all, my daughter's dead. She's dead. What if somebody, as I saw my little Olivia drowning in that water, just stood up in front of me and said, no, we're going to sit here and we're going to have a conversation. (laughs) Like, how do you think that I would feel I would have all these feelings of rage and frustration and anger as I would try to push that person out of the way and get to saving my daughter. So Jairus here has got to be frustrated. But look what Jesus says to him, because I think that Jesus already knows what's going on in his mind. And Jesus says this. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will will be healed. Who is this Jesus? Like that he even has power to raise people from the dead. Going on in verse 51. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. She's not dead, but asleep. See, in ancient culture, what would happen is because the body would begin to decompose so quickly, there were professional mourners that would come in and they would begin to mourn and weep for the loss of the person, no matter how rich or poor you were. But because of Jairus' status in the community, he would have had many mourners. And they are all there wailing and crying for this daughter, preparing her for her burial, which would be almost immediate and see mourners weren't called until the death was official and so friends be certain that when jesus says that she is only sleeping she has indeed died he's using the same language that he uses in john chapter 11 verses 11 through 14 andrew do we have that one 
we can put that one up there. When he is speaking about Lazarus, he says this. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. But Jesus had been speaking of his death. But his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But you know what? Jesus has the power even to raise people from death to life. And you're about to see it. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and he said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned at once and she stood up. And then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Now you may wonder, like, what is this all about, giving her something to eat? It's to show that she isn't just halfway revived like this hasn't been like some like bringing her back into a coma. She has the ability to get up and eat because she has been fully restored. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. There's two things that we have got to walk away with from tonight before we go into this next piece. And, and guys, the, the, what we're going to do in a minute is just a part of the message as me standing here speaking. There's two points. If you have a pen and a paper, I want you to write these down. If you walk away from tonight and you miss this, then I truly believe that your faith cannot be strengthened the way that it should be. First, not only does Christ have power over nature and demons, but He also has power over sickness and death. Let me say that again. Not only does Christ have power over nature and demons, but he also has power over sickness and death. You see, Luke is writing this letter to Theopolis, and in these past four stories, a story over calming the waves, over healing a demon-possessed man, over curing sickness, and over raising someone from the dead, he has power over nature, he has power over demons, he has power over sickness, he has power over death. Theopolis! Jesus is God! you get it? This is Luke's Christology of who Jesus is. The word Christology literally means the study of who Jesus is. Jesus is indeed God. And this is the sign. And he's telling him after story, after story, after story. And because he is God and he has power over waves and he has power over demons and he has power over sickness and he has power over death, He has power from beginning to end. Now this gets hard. But the reality is, in the first days of that 12-year sickness, God was there. He never left. (laughs) When when Jairus' daughter died, even though Jesus wasn't there, he was there. Does that make sense? He didn't have to be there physically to be there because he's God. And he knew she died. When your grandfather died, God was present. He was present there. And when you prayed for your marriage and it was restored, He was there too. He's there from the beginning and He's there from the end. God is sovereign and He is in control. And it is through the hard circumstances of our life, friends, that God is using His power to bring about the faith that we need to be able to worship Him correctly and to be satisfied in Him forever. Are you getting it? Here it is. This is the picture. It's all about His glory. All of it. 
So here's the second piece. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to I give you guys a, a, a passage. Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 17. And write this down, okay? You don't have to flip there. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. He is the image of the invisible God. This is Christ, the firstborn over all of creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. Everything was created for him, us, this building, our lives, our death. Everything was created for him. He is before all things and he holds all things together. He holds this church together. He holds your marriage together. He holds your job together. He holds your car together that brought you here. All things he holds together. That, my friends, is the gospel. And he's using his power to bring about in you the faith that he needs for him to be worshipped and you to be satisfied. Check out this next thing. Second point is this. God not only initiates our faith, but he knows our faith's greatest need. You see, this is what Jesus does. And that story that we talked about a minute ago, Jesus knew what that woman needed to be saved. He knew. We didn't know that that woman would need 12 years of sickness and to spend all of her money on doctors to finally get to a point of desperation where she would reach up to Jesus and she would say, I need your help because I can't do it on my own anymore. And that's exactly what she does. And God knows it. God not only initiates our faith, but He knows what it needs. Not only that, but Jesus knew that in order for her to fully be healed in front of this community, her faith did not need to be shy, but it needed to be brought into the open. And so Jesus says, who touched me? He knows who touched him. But this woman has a faith that's shy, and it needs to be brought into the open. And so Jesus does a beautiful job of putting faith on display. So he can say, your faith has healed you. Some of you in the room tonight have a faith that is shy. And God is going to use some experiences. He's going to use some moments in your life where he is going to take your faith and he is going to put it on display. You're going to see faith on display here in just a second. And God does that. Not only that, but think about Jairus. Here's the man that came before Jesus in front of all the city. He had all the clout and he gets down on his face, and he's persistent, he is in the open, he's right there. And he says, Jesus, I need your help right now. And everybody can see me. And what does Jesus do to his faith? Be patient. Wait on me. Be persistent in your faith. Jairus, calm down. I'm God. And so he makes him wait even though he's so vocal, he makes him wait. Some of you right now have got some situations going on in your life. You've got some financial struggles that you have been praying over. You've got some stuff going on at work that is tearing you up and up inside. You've got some relationship stuff that you feel like if it doesn't end soon, that it is going to drive you to the end of yourself. 
and you've got faith, that's not the problem. The problem is you haven't completely put all of your rest in God and said, God, despite this entire situation, I recognize that you are in control. And at the moment that I give you complete control, no matter what the situation is, I can find satisfaction. Isn't that good? To know that no matter what situation you're in, if you put God in complete control, He can bring about joy in your life. Here in a moment, we're going to see some videos of some people in our community that have had this exact same experience. And friends, until you recognize that God has authority over all things and He is going to do whatever it takes to bring about the faith in your life that you need to glorify Him the most, you will not be satisfied in God. You've got to get those two things. Let's pray. God, we love You. We thank You for tonight. God, I pray that You would use the testimony of these three people in our church, God, to bring about more glory for Yourself. I pray that when You put their faith on display, that it will rock our world and it will change our life. Amen.